Greetings and welcome to another exciting episode of the Afrofuturist podcast. My name is Ahmed Best. I will be your host. Thank you for listening. Uh, We've been away for a little bit, but we are back uh, with hopefully some really interesting topics and people to talk with. And today we have a wonderful guest. Her name is Karen Seneferu. She is an artist. She is an educator. Uh, And she has some of the most interesting work that has been produced um, in the Afrofuturist space that hasn't been talked about very much. She has a wonderful way of bringing the traditional African art and traditional African inspiration and mixing media and making it current and not only current making it so thought-provoking that you don't only pay attention to the piece you pay attention to the message within the piece and she has created some uh wonderful works one of them is called the techno in kisi and we really get into um how she came up with this and why it's important and she talks about what the Inkisi is, and the Inkisi is uh, a piece of art, which was a container that was covered by a mirror in the stomach or in the head or in the back, and it activated the power for daily life. And this was, um, Inkisi's dated all the way back to the 16th century and sometimes earlier in the Congo Basin of Africa. And what Karen did was, instead of it being a mirror, she added um a technological aspect to it right and she'll talk about this in the podcast and she renamed her pieces the techno in kisi and it was a really wonderful way of bringing the african art aesthetic and idea into the future and creating a wonderful mixed media presentation of it we also get into something that she talks about um an exhibit that she did Uh, called The Black Woman is God. And she based it off of this idea that black women contain the mitochondrial DNA of the entire human race. And she draws this really wonderful, um, thought-provoking question in that uh, piece, The Black Woman is God. And she is, it really is a testament to her, um, her 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 prowess as an artist and as an educator because it's it, it's it's there to provoke you it's there to elicit a reaction because when you hear something like the black woman is god it brings a, a a discomfort to a lot of people because this idea of what a god is is usually male it's usually white and and it's this you know it's a it's a real heavy debate And she talks about this in the podcast about how it's very easy to look at black women as not God. Why is it difficult to look at black women as God? And um, it's, it's a wonderful, thought provoking argument, as well as a wonderful piece of art. She talks about the idea of who we are in uh, as as a genetic code and how that coding really makes a difference in how we think and how we operate and how we influence the future. 
So without further ado, I'm going to stop babbling and um, please enjoy Miss Karen Seneferu. Karen Seneferu, welcome to the Afrofuturist podcast. Thank you for coming on. Oh, well, greetings, Ahmed, and thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm very excited about this um, discussion. Yeah, so am I. When I first um, met you up at Cal State East Bay, I was really taken aback with um, how you find how you find your work in space. You have a very specific mm-hmm. idea of what space is and how we fill space and, and what and the meaning of space. I wanted to mm-hmm. start out talking like that and kind of work backwards towards your okay. background and you know what you're doing now. But the thing that really just jumped out at me is when we talk about um, the future, we talk about a future with, a, with uh, an African perspective there Mm. is this idea of space there is this idea of how do we represent space how do we track things in space and then the the thing Mm. that really took me um that made me super interested in what you were talking about was how you interpret space where did that idea come from um it came from working i think primarily um in community colleges with foundational students and understanding the struggles that a number of these students were having coming into, or you know, they were adult returning students and they were having trouble coming and acclimating into the school system, um, the classroom, the curriculum, the, you know, the ability to, to determine their self-worth in those spaces. And so um, at one point I said to them, just as a way of, getting them to understand this idea of community discourse. Mm. And so I said, um, space dictates meaning. What enters that space is dictated to by the meaning of the space or the individual can change the meaning of the space. And so, you know, this was, and I heard it and I thought, okay, how do I, how do I, you know, like, what does that really mean to me? Like, why am I actually saying that? What What's triggering me to, you know, make that statement and then think that it's going to come across to these students who have been out of, you know, out of the school system for maybe 10, 12 years. And the reason why they've been out of it is because they feared um, the academic space. And so I wanted to encourage them to recognize that once they understood the construct of the spaces that they're in, where it, whether it's an academic institution or it's a governmental building or it's a um, judicial space uh, where they often are that they have to understand what what created that space and then to what extent as individuals they can reconstruct that space for themselves and so that's initially where they where that came from Um, but i would also say it intersected too with me being an artist and being asked to to come into spaces where there I saw very little of myself, either as an, a black woman or as a black artist. When did you recognize the fact that there was this emptiness in representation when it came to the art world and and your personal 
journey. Was that something that you always knew? That was something that you were always aware of? Mm -hmm. Or was there like an aha moment where you just were like, wait a minute, I am not here. I am not represented here. I don't look like I'm here. What's happening? I think I've always known that because, you know, initially I came into the art world um, as um, uh, as a spectator, you know, someone who came um, to museums and, you know, looked at work um, and recognized some of the traditional artwork on the wall that was created by white men. Um, I recognized that neither I was being represented as the viewer or as the artist. And so that, um, you know, that made me uncomfortable. Um, But at the same time, I was very interested in, uh, you know, just as a a person who desired beauty, um, uh, you know, I would go into these spaces, but I recognized something was lost there um, for me and that um, they, there must be um, black artists. Who are they? <laughs> Where are they? And why don't I see them? And so I think that's initially how the journey started. And was it a, a cultural journey that began it or was it a visceral one? Did you want to see black faces or did, were you yeah. aware of the fact that there, there is no representation of where I come from? Like which one came well, first? I'm- I think you know it's it's you know this this question is very interesting because I feel like it's 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 requiring me to keep continuously to go back backwards as I'm thinking about this, but I think I remember there was this specific moment where I was at the Oakley Museum and I was with a friend, uh, a white male friend, and we were looking at these landscapes, these you know paintings um, uh, of landscapes and are these portrait um, paintings. And they were probably like, um, maybe they were 18th century um, paintings or you know, 17th, 18th century paintings. And I was looking and looking through them and, I, and it just hit me. I said, like, did any black people paint these? <laughs> it, just, it was just like, out of the blue, I was like, who painted this work? And and were they black people? Did black people paint during this time? Did they create? And my friend said to me, why does it matter? And just, I mean, I think I must have been in my mid-20s, mid-20s, early 30s. And I, and I, and it was at that point I said, okay, this person, I can't even explain to this person why that matters to me. And if he's asking me that question, then clearly there is a gap between uh, what I'm experiencing viscerally and what he's inquiring with almost judgment. And um, I think that that was really the, you know, like that that first real place of a, a quest um, for wanting to see myself through through artwork. And was that also when you decided to start educating? Um, what do you mean by that? Which one came <laughs> first? Like, what were you an artist first and then a teacher, or did did they happen simultaneously? And did the and did the question of seeing yourself 
And uh-huh. that question of why does it matter leads you to this, you know, question of, right well, now. I have to teach people why it matters. Um, I think, you know, you know, the, the journey of how you get to yourself um, happens in stages and like it's there's, you know, some things come before the other and others kind of merge simultaneously. Um, I think I've always been an artist, um, you know, even when I was a little girl. I think my my first love is definitely dance. Um, I think I initially I wanted to be a dancer. Um, and I was discouraged from doing that very early. Um, but I love dance. And, um, and my first close relationship with an artist was a choreographer, Robert Johnson, who was a fantastic um, choreographer. He's also a poet and he loved literature. And so we would share our love of Toni Morrison and I think for him, he enjoyed my interpretation of what I saw him doing with his body. You know, he, he, he felt like there was nobody that could verbally describe it. And because I was in the, um, I was at the university, I was at UC Berkeley at the time, you know, the ability to use language in a particular way and be able to define what the object is doing and what is the meaning of the object came very comfortably for me through the body because now I could see someone communicating something that I felt deep inside me um, as an artist, but was not being conveyed through my own body. And so um, he, Robert Johnson really gave me room to verbalize um, what I was imagining um, through his his interpretation of art and 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 really allowed for me to recognize that the critiques um, were a form of art itself and so um i think like that was really one of the places where i recognized i had something um but wasn't really comfortable about it but was comfortable enough to be in a space where someone was creating and creating um, out of the black aesthetic, but was being embraced by an incredibly multicultural uh, audience um, at the time in which he was choreographing. So I think, like that, that idea of wanting of you know education and and art um, merged simultaneously, and I can I, and I would say that that has always from that that. Um, intersection. Um, I move, I have moved forward as an artist and as an educator with the intention of both those spaces being connected all, at all times. And did you always have an affinity for African art and African culture? Um, I would have to say yes, even as a little girl. Um, you know, it's interesting, like, what, what triggers you? Um, what and 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 creates an imprint on you, um, and shapes you as an adult. And I think um, one of the things that I remember as a little girl, and I know I'm dating myself here. Um, there used to be uh, years ago, I don't many many moons ago, um, a television show called National. It was a television show called National Geographic. <laughs> And um, I, and it would come on on Sundays, 
And as a little girl, I would watch that. And and I would be mesmerized. Like it was the only time you could actually see bare-breasted women on television. So of course there was the spectacle aspect of it, but there was the beauty of what they were showing. I'd never seen um, that I didn't see in my own reality. So I think that that was one of the ways in which, as a child, I was trying to connect. But then the more that um, I was interested in claiming my body physically and in public um, and certainly being triggered by um, Malcolm X's autobiography around um, what it meant to perm one's hair, I really desired to um, shave all my, my hair off and I did and um, went on that venture of exploration and claiming my body through African aesthetic. And so um, the, I, I think the more that I um, moved in the world, it was attempting to um, you know, create ornamentation um, through either you know, jewelry or fabric or markings on my face, whatever it was I was attempting to, you know, to, to define for myself um, artistically and aesthetically and, and uh, you know, through some ethnography, um, I uh, recognized um, that my physical presence in public was moving people um, in particular kinds of ways and not always positive, but not always negative. Um, I, I recognized that it wasn't a safe space that I was uh, navigating, whether people admired it, the admiration almost felt too much or whether people were either disturbed or frightened by it. Um, it required me to go inward, like inner, like what is that? Like, why are people responding that? What is it that I'm causing in them viscerally through my physical presence that that's uh, moving them out of outside of their own bodies to, to confront me. And so, um, it was really like this desire for, um, you know, the African presence in my own representation um, was a desire to claim my body and, um, and claim it in public and in a way that represented the value of beauty that was not Western. And did you ever feel like you needed to explain that to folks? And I asked that question no. because um, no. a lot of times, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and it's very... <laughs> A lot of times when I when I talk about things that have African origin, it's looked on as a threat. And you know, you were talked to yeah. you you were just talking about this when it when it came to your appearance and how you expressed yourself. And it's always interesting, even when I mention that I'm doing this podcast called The Afrofuturist, um a question I get a lot is, uh, do you have to be black to listen to it? And <laughs> it sounds it sounds silly. It really sounds silly. And when I when I think about the question, I I'm like I'm amazed because as yeah. soon as you put an af in front of anything, yeah. 
it yeah, becomes a threat, you know, or yeah, it, it, it's there is this huge thought bubble, this huge empty thought bubble that happens over mm -hmm. people when you hear it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, mm -hmm. it's interesting you being an educator and an artist simultaneously because, you know, I'm not an educator. So I have no problem saying I don't have to explain anything to you. You know what I mean? <laughs> but as a as an educator who mm -hmm. is actively putting yourself out there, right? Mm -hmm. Is there this impetus to try to bridge gaps, to mm -hmm. try to explain, to try mm -hmm. to take away mm -hmm. that stigma between the AFR dot dot dot? Well, I mean, there's, you know, the, there's the importance of creating foundational material that connects to history that oftentimes is missing from student body, you know, so um, it's, but if you mean, do I, do I feel compelled to explain who I am or why I look the way I do in, in classroom, you know, as a part of my curriculum, um no i don't necessarily i don't feel it i don't feel there's a need to do that um but i do recognize that in my teaching strategy if i'm asking students to you know participate in the inquiry of the self you know because oftentimes my topics are around identity you know and then there's like three questions i'm always is it three or four questions i'm always asking students throughout the semester and that's who are you how you how do you come to know yourself the self you come to know when you create it or was it created for you and if it and if not then who are you so actually it's five questions mm -hmm. <laughs> but um so i'm asking them that throughout the, the the semester and it's connecting to identity and culture versus condition and you know what are the social constructs that shape who we are so we're looking at race and and gender and sexuality and class and and so you know students are always uh, feel compelled to to ex, you know, explain their own personal experiences in relation to these ideas, and so in that sense, I'm compelled to enter into that dialogue because it's very important to um, to share with them. You know, so I feel I feel compelled to share with them, but I don't feel compelled to explain my my present my representation of my presentation as as it but people are always uh, people feel compelled to ask me to explain it mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, I said that that's usually what happens especially in closed quarters like the elevator or at a stoplight or in a store or you know it's 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 um i'm not shocked so much by it i almost prepare myself if i, if I find people coming too close so that you know so i've had people say that's a lovely costume where is it from so i have to explain there's a difference between costume and garment there's a between a difference between seeming and being <laughs> um and so or i'll say oh thank you um i'm having a beautiful morning how how's your morning right. and they'll say um uh, yeah, so where's your where's your outfit from and i'll say um yeah it's really sunny outside <laughs> right and so finally they'll go uh, oh 
and then they and they'll and, and they'll, they'll say, oh, pardon me. <laughs> yeah, they'll recognize that. <laughs> but it that takes they, them a moment. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, that's that's not, that's abnormal. Yeah. That's not normal uh, unless you feel, you know, unless the society has constructed an environment for you to say that you have a right to say whatever you like to people and confront them. And and if, you have, if you're curious to ask them a question and their job is to fulfill your curiosity and I'm not, I, so I don't feel compelled to do that because I'm not an object. I don't see myself as an object in the world and I'm not trying to affirm that for people. Hmm. We had a conversation about artificial intelligence and um, we did an episode, we did an in-between in episode for the Average Jewish podcast about the argument that's going on between Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk. And yes. my uh, interpretation of uh, what they're both saying was they're both missing a perspective that is mm. often missed when you're talking about rich billionaires that come from a tradition of imperialism. And yes, sir. Um, Mark Zuckerberg believed, just to, to paraphrase very quickly, Mark Zuckerberg believes mm -hmm. that artificial intelligence will be, you know, human beings, perfect benevolent servant. And Elon mm -hmm. Musk believes that if we don't regulate artificial intelligence, they'll kill us all. Mm -hmm. um, my belief is because the input of artificial intelligence comes from these mindsets and there aren't, mm -hmm. there isn't enough mm -hmm. diversity on the input side of artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. we're going to get neither. What we are going to get is the next Martin Luther King Jr. or the next Mahatma mm -hmm. Gandhi because that's what happens when you try to control consciousness. A consciousness mm. then erupts that says, you both are wrong, this is who mm. we are. That's so interesting. Um, um, I was in the, no, I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead. So, you know, and I was thinking about this with, <clears throat> excuse me, when you were talking about code, when we were up at mm. Cal State's Bay and how you were talking about the code of uh, human beings originated mm -hmm. in Africa and you drew this wonderful parallel between writing code and being code. And um, mm. it, it kind of goes I along. That? Yeah, you did. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> I got to start recording myself. <laughs> um, and we, and you know, this I think ties into your black woman is God um, uh -huh. piece. Um, and I really wanted to hear more about where that came mm -hmm. from and why that is. Mm -hmm. And mm. this idea of creation and how we are creating right now without mm. a specific side of the story. Mm. Wow. Um, yeah, I think it's both important that um, we have our own space to create without um, being in, in, uh, encumbered by the kinds of narratives that uh, that you mentioned earlier. It's interesting too. I was at a I was invited to a lecture um, at the Berkeley Museum this week, and uh, you know where a number of the scholars that were on the panel were talking about um, this debate that you mentioned. Uh, one of the uh, one of the individuals was a um, uh, professor, uh, an, an engineering professor, 
and um, he his his point. I, I, I don't remember his name um, at at present, but he said that it's it that you know whether it was Zuckerberg or or Marsh is his name. He Musk. said that neither yeah. Musk, um, neither one. He said it's not going to be either one of those arguments. <laughs> you know, he says, um, you know that that um, it's going to be something um, much more um, valuable and that and non threatening and. Um, that will emerge um and he says you know so that and, and pretty much that was that was what he was saying and and the 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 conversation the, the discussion was really around um what does it mean for the university to um be a democratic sp space and um especially at uc berkeley um, being the cornerstone of free speech and also having uh, an, a, a climate of, of, of individuals coming in to challenge what is free speech. Mm. And so uh, there was the discussion around having more inclusion, um, the university reaching out to the uh, the people, the people being seen historically as the space of profane and that the university like a like a uh, cathedral was the space of science or the space that was cut off from the profane and, and in doing so could create an environment uh, that 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 had at its core the desire to, to create um, sanctuary. Mm -hmm. Right. So the public was the the space of, of of the profane, or where art would emerge, and the 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 sanctuary, the the space of sanctuary, the sacred space, was supposed to be the say the space that um, also was connected to science. <clears throat> and so I thought, oh, this is you know kind of interesting. <laughs> to think about and um so one of the things that really struck me about their discussion was that i remember professors having the same conversation probably 20 years ago when i was at the university and i said wow we're still here and we're still having the same discussion around how do we create a space of inclusion and that I found uh, a bit disturbing and that perhaps the panel was different in that there were women, but most of them were white and there was one person of color and that was a black guy and he was in the, um, in the Eng English department. And so, um, and you know, as you, as universities do and in, in, in the, in these kinds of lectures, you get more questions than answers. Um, and the way that the narrative is presented in terms of inclusion is still in very marginalized ways. Mm -hmm. And so, um, codes, I guess, you know, the, the writing codes, the being codes, you know, being able to, you know, I think in part um, to survive in an environment 
um, where you don't physically look like the meta narrative of who is supposed to be an academic and who is supposed to be an intellectual and who is supposed to be um, the voice of inquiry. You have to develop a level of being codes in that space in order to survive it. Otherwise, you become that thing that initially um, creates some level of fear and anxiety because physically you don't belong and you know that your physical presence carries with it a, a historical um, uh, opposition to that meta narrative. And, and one can spend a lot of time attempting to prove that one is not the representation that comes before it. So, you know, trying not to spend a lot of energy um, in that, um, you know, please accept me mold. Um, I've always been kind of in a space and out of the space, you know, I've mm. always navigated in, in that way as um, a really important um, not just survival mode, but um, maintenance, you know, the, the maintaining of, of myself, which I think allowed, um, has allowed for me to also be creative um, because in those spaces, they, you know, there's a desire for the institution, the people who affirm the institution to have you submit to it in a particular kind of way. Um, and, um, you know, so, so I've always, you know, struggled with that. So the art world um, isn't much different. Um, you know, it's the same. It's the, the the same people who created the education or the academy created the you know the created the art institution created the educational institution. It's the same people. It's the same kind of systematic structure. Um, so for me. You know, getting to this idea of, you know, being invited to be in spaces because I'm dialoguing with um, artwork that's already been legitimized on a certain level. You know, African art that's been legitimized by, um, you know, the dominant group. Um, there was, um, you know, I was already participating in one of the uh, principles, uh, principal practices to get a certain level of recognition. I didn't know I was doing that. I didn't, you know, it wasn't intentional. Um, but I um, saw the um, Nkisi um, and was very struck by, it. and actually I met this woman who was selling a number of her Nkisis. She was, this must've been at least, yeah, it was probably 15 years ago. This young woman who was a traveler, um, and, you know, I think that she came from a very wealthy family and she had um, acquired um, these Minkisis. They were just small ones, large ones, you know, these wooden sculptures out of the Congo Basin. They're like 17th, 18th century art pieces. They have nails all over them and a box in the center that's covered up. That's called the power force or power source. And each nail, it represents a resolution of a community member or an individual. Um, and so um, if if that individual doesn't stay committed to that resolution, then there's something that will come out of the box itself and attack the individual. So I was really struck by these these 
these in uh, minkisis. They're called minkisis when there is more than one. Um, and, um, and, you know, had seen them a lot at the flea market. And I was getting these, you know, these, these kind of parables about them, too. I would get the story about how when the Europeans came to Africa and were, were attempting to convince, <clears throat> you know, Africans to, um, to take on Catholicism, that they um, would talk about the, you know, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the nailing to the cross, and they, <laughs> and this one particular elder said, um, an artist, and not an artist, but a community brought out an inkisi and had all these nails all through it, and said, well, then what about the sacrifice of this figure, hmm. right? <laughs> so. I was always struck by those, you know, people's desires to want them and then, you know, what the intentions are and then what the, you know, the, the narratives were developing around them, you know, through those individuals from the continent who were selling these pieces. And so um, I said, oh, it just struck me. I, you know, I said, well, what would it be like to um, dialogue with, uh, to create an inkisi, in create my own inkisi, but except um, having a box that's um, covered that one doesn't know is in, what's inside. It was like the, you know, the 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 um, the spirit guider or the, um, um, the the person who created the inkisi was considered like a. Um, uh, uh, a very important spiritual person within the community, a priest, you know, you know, as a, as an equivalency, I guess. And, um, only he knew what was inside the box. And so it's also a male dominated, um, piece too, in terms of the building of it. And so I said, well, what would it look like for me to create an Nkisi, um, have all these little pouches, you know, with herbs and mixtures and that, you know, that I, both I knew and, but the community didn't know, which were supposed to be the healing sources. But instead of nails, I would have that. And then I'll create inside the box a, a container that held technology. And that technology would be turn, with turning the inside out. So what was, what people could actually look in it uh, and and people could, um, but people could necessarily, but there would still be some element of mystery. So my first in Kesey had had um, our techno Kesey is what I ended up calling my piece. Um, had uh, a pod that I worked with this company called Bug Labs in New York, and um, it had a video in it, and that video had close-ups of people's eyes. So you know in some ways reflecting that idea of mystery mm. but the technology became the source by which people looked into the piece um, so just trying to play around um with um this very important piece of artwork that for for whatever reason western culture is very compelled by because you'll see it in every museum you know you there 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 are minkisis around the world you know so this is a very um fundamental piece of art um that europeans are are have invested in um and so um that's where um i started initially started being asked 
um, to come into museums and to come into um, universities to show that work. Um, and I was, a, you know, at that time, I was a very new artist. I still see myself as an, a very new artist, but um, I was getting asked to be in spaces that my husband, you know, for instance, who had been creating for, um, he probably had been creating for 30 years, he was not being asked to be in those spaces. And he certainly had a, you know, breadth and weight of work that I didn't have, but I was being asked to be there. So that struck me like one, I was this black woman being asked to be in the space in a museum and there, you know, there were two museums at one time in Los Angeles at the Skirball Museum and at, at CAM uh, um, simultaneously through this piece. But in part that happened because the curator was a black woman and she had a relationship to these universities. So I recognized like something was happening. There were, there were black women who were being in positions of opening the doorway and asking other black women to come into those spaces. But then it meant that I was um, among, I would be among other black artists, but I would be maybe one black woman or among other artists and I would be the only black right. artist. And so that's where um, I felt the need to not just show my artwork in those spaces, but to somehow um, take over the space and to create some kind of um, code for myself that eventually became connected to the Black Woman is God exhibition where the, the third exhibition was called um, the Black Woman is God reprogramming that God code. Right. And that showed at Soma Arts uh, Gallery in San Francisco. Just to jump back to Techno and Kisi, um, yeah. What made you replace the mirror with video? Like, what was the what was the thought behind that? Like, why why did all of a sudden like these screens show up with the Inkisi? Like, what what gave you the impetus to do screens rather than um, something something else reflective? Um. <clears throat> While it's looking at you know the frame of 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 the of the Inkisi and it's it's primarily wooden and I'm not a wooden sculpture as you know sculpture uh, I'm not somebody that creates wooden sculptures, um, but I also um, so the physical structure of it uh, changed you know I was actually using um, something. That was very fragile, um, which was um, pa paper lantern, paper mm. lanterns that looked like um, um, like uh, uh, pods. And then I would change the outer, the outer and inner shell to make it strong enough to hold things on it. Um, but it, but I also wanted to. You know, I was also thinking about like what would advance the Inkisi. You know, how could I um, speak to, you know, what is the force that would draw a wide range of people to the the um, in the Techno Kisi um, as a healing um, space, a space of resolution, 
um, and at the same time not necessarily be the power force. So I recognized that I was placing the, the, te the technology at the center, um, which would suggest that it was the power force. But for me, that was the tool that would that was uh, common to um, all of the, you know, to a wide range of people who would walk up to it, that that was going to pull people. Um, but then the question became, uh, once I did that, how would I still maintain the integrity of the Nkisi by uh, still holding mystery? How could I both reveal and conceal simultaneously? And so I felt technology would best, you know, do that. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> When you talk about, I'm jumping forward to the Black Woman is God exhibition, the reprogramming the code. What code are you reprogramming? And what are you trying to elicit by saying the Black Woman is God? Huh. Well, there's the Black Woman is God. Okay, I'll start with the codes um, or the code. Uh, for me, you know, the code is, you know, the mystery of the black woman's resilience to um, endure and yet somehow propel herself to endure history that's in the present, but still propel herself forward uh, in the future by her relationship to family, to self, family, and community, and and society itself, you know that you know black women are seen as the you know the lowest level. I mean, we are the you know the lowest level in terms of the social status, and yet we are still um, like these incredible um, beings who can create so much and um, uh, are able to to make you know possible um, spaces for others to enter into and dialogue with and achieve and acquire some level of power in those environments and so to me that that is a code I mean then of course there's the biological code through um um god her name is escaping me just escaped me um she was with me and then she disappeared yeah. um well just, just you know through the gila you know the being you know that black women hold the mitochondria um dna of the entire human race there's no other woman on the planet that has that that's a biological code that biological code ha must have some other codes embedded in that um that um you know that we are as a society are unaware of or have some sense of and are frightened by which is the need to establish so many ways of socially controlling us and so um just i, I really just wanted to create a platform where black women could acknowledge the very best part of who we are and I know that that can be controversial, 
because there's also the narrative that in doing that, you know, you're creating this superhuman-like presence, suggesting that we don't, um, that somehow we can overcome trauma in ways others can't, and um, and so people don't see the ways in which Black women are really struggling against these various forms of social control. And I'm not attempting to say that. What I am saying is that if Black women can be seen and have have been seen so long in, in, in the world as the lowest person on the social ladder, why can't we, why are people uncomfortable? People are comfortable seeing us at the lowest level, but why are they uncomfortable seeing us at the highest level mm. of this, you know, lack of a better word, chain of being? So, you know, just really wanting to challenge people's interpretations and perceptions around what Black women contribute to um, in terms of humanity and through our biology, but also in uh, in terms of um, culturally through our contributions and socially and politically through once we have access to spaces that we tend to create the possibilities for others to access it as well. Hmm. Karen, um, it is wonderful, wonderful to talk to you. I I feel like we need to do another hour at another time because I have so much... (laughs) I have so many more things that I want to I want to talk to you about, and it's just been such a pleasure. Where can um, the listeners find your work, find your writing, find your teaching, all of that stuff? Where can we find you? Oh, thank you. Well, thank you, Ahmed, and thank you, Lonnie, for this opportunity. I really enjoyed being able to unravel, you know, this work that I'm doing. So often I'm in it, and um, so it's hard to actually know what it is often that I'm doing until I'm, I'm asked these very um, inquisitive, um, probing questions that I think have been very helpful for me too. So thank you for that. Well, yeah, I teach at Cal State East Bay and I teach at, uh, through the Peralta District. Um, they can, folks can find out about me online. You can just type my name in, Karen Senefru, spelled S-E-N-E-F-E-R-U. They can also type in the Black Women is God exhibition and we'll pop up. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram. So all those social medias, mediums that um, folks are looking for people to be on to, to stay in contact. Wonderful. Well, Karen Seneferu, thank you so much for being on the Afrofuturist podcast. Um, I got a feeling that you're going to be on a bunch of times. Thank you for listening to the Afrofuturist podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be a sponsor of the show, please contact me at Ahmed Best at the Afrofuturistpodcast.com or at Ahmed Best on Twitter. If you have any ideas of any great guests that we would like to talk to on the Afrofuturist podcast, please contact me again at Ahmed Best at the Afrofuturistpodcast.com or contact me on Twitter at Ahmed Best. Thank you all for listening again, and I'll see you next time.